0: Amen. Well, good, morning. Good, morning. good morning. All right, Alex, you want your phone back? I should have totally just hacked your social media. <laughs> All right, so 2 Samuel 14, we're going to stay there. Uh, if you're already there from the liturgy reading, that's where the passage we're going to be in today. Uh, we're going to continue on. We've been working through this section of 2 Samuel on kind of the fall of David, right? We The rise and fall of Israel also kind of culminates with the rise and fall of David, right? We saw David on his kind of on his bringing into the kingdom, becoming king, how God used him and how his character shined through and how he was so contrasted with Saul, the king prior to him. That was what the people wanted and how the people tend to judge a king or a leader, but not what God wanted. And so... As we've seen this, we've been reading through how David's big fall with Bathsheba impacted his life. And so uh, I want to give you kind of a a main idea for the day, focusing on our lives. We We often help other people fix their lives but are unwilling to fix our own. Consider sin and forgiveness today and how we apply it to ourselves versus others, right? And so we've talked about David's failures and how he has to walk through the repercussions or the the things that he causes, the penalties or the consequences of his sin. And then we looked at how our sins affect other people, right? So we walk through the decisions we make, even if God forgives us, even if heaven is secured for us, we still have to walk through the consequences of our decisions. And then we talked about how sin affects others. And then today I just want to look at how we Treat sin in our own lives versus in other people's, or how we treat forgiving other people versus the way we have been forgiven. And so we're going to look at that through David's life today. 2 Samuel 14, verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. So if you remember last week, Absalom and Amnon, the sons of David, uh, have this problem amnon goes and rapes the sister his half-sister the sister of absalom and for doing that absalom kills his brother amnon right and so this is a part of what god had told david already the sword will never depart your family there's going to be struggles from here on forward part of the penalty or part of the consequences of your decision is that there is going to be violence and death and things inside of your family. And so we see that in the very next section as one brother does some horrible things to the sister of Absalom, his half-sister, and then he is killed by his brother. So David here is not only seeing this be true, but he's also experiencing this. It was his daughter that had that happen to her. It was his son that is dead. It was his son who killed him. And so we're seeing this ripple out. So because of this, Absalom is now on the run from his father, David. And so that's where we pick up the story. But we know that David's heart goes out to Absalom. He is missing and longing for his son. In the last chapter that we were in, we talked about then when he had, been done, when he had gotten through the mourning for Amnon, what was left was this longing for Absalom to be home. So Absalom is still gone. And that's where we pick up the story. Joab wants to help fix this. Verse 2. And Joab sent it to Koah and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the, go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab is a friend of David's. He has been one of the most faithful people to David all along. And so he devises this plan to bring this woman in to tell this story to David so that he can kind of share what David is doing from a different perspective. He's going to give him a different view of what David is doing in hopes to help David reconcile with his son Absalom. Verse 4, when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow, my husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus would quench the coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor nor remnant on the face of the earth. So a woman goes and she shares with King David. She tells this story as if it's her own. She says, listen, my husband died. I'm a widow. And he left me with these two sons. And these two sons, as they grew up, they quarreled out in the field and no one was there to break them up. And so one killed the other. And because of that, now people want to take that penalty out on the one who killed his brother. But really what that is going to leave me with is no sons, Two dead sons, no husband, no inheritance. And so lots of Jewish law and culture plays in here. When a husband would die, the inheritance would go to the sons, right? And if there was no sons, you guys know that like a brother would have to come in and provide a son for the inheritance, right? And then, so there was, the, it would pass on from father to son. This is before women owned property, businesses, things like that. And so it would go from husband to, or from father to son, so the widow was dependent upon her sons inheriting that family business. And so if the two go out, and then and they get in a fight, and one kills the other, then you're down to one son, and the law also allowed that if one man got in a fight with another man and killed him, you could put him to death. In fact, that's where the term manslaughter comes from, is that circumstance, where you do something, and you're not intending to kill them, but what you do is reckless, and it does kill them, the Bible created the term manslaughter. We still use that in our court systems today. And so manslaughter could be punished by death. And so now, here's what she's got. Listen, it is legal to kill the son I have left, but here's the problem. Then I'm left with nothing. So I want to give you a note. Now, it's kind of, We could apply this to a lot of things. Let's just read through it. What is legal versus what is right? Sometimes we see, and this is scripture included, things that may be legal but not be right. It challenges us to seek not what is allowable but what is best. Right? There are things that are legal. The death penalty here in this case is legal. But it may not be what is best. You have to factor in more. Now, notice that other people want to execute judgment on the son that's remaining. Right now, who would normally want justice for a dead son? It would be a mom or a a dad or something like that. But the dad is dead. She's a widow. And, and And the one who would be most rightly in pursuit of justice is saying, no, that helps nothing. Right? That just leaves us with nothing, with no sons, with no future, with no inheritance. And so though it may be legal, it would not be right. And so sometimes we have to back out of the circumstance and say, well, this is what's legal or this is what's allowable. We did this back in January when the Supreme Court in December had said churches are allowed to gather. No one can stop churches from gathering. They can gather indoors, they can gather outdoors, they'll have to have some restrictions, but they can gather, right? When well, we were gathering outdoors and the numbers kind of spiked in January after the holidays, And we rolled back to online only for two, three weeks to help be a part of the problem. I mean, a part of the solution, not the problem. I'm so used to being a part of the problem that I just (laughs) it just comes out naturally, right? So we went back to on our own choice, and one of the comments that I heard from everybody was, it was nice that we decided that. We hate when somebody tells us what to do, but we chose. Like, hey, we think this is good, right? And so we have tried to lead that way. What is legal? What's allowable? And I don't mean what is legal constitution. I mean, like, what are the people telling us to do? What's right? How do we do that best? And we remained outdoors for months. Things come down. More businesses open. We move back inside, right? To be fair, Israel was built on outdoor worship. I think we can suck it up a little bit in Southern California, right? Right. It rained the other day. I had to keep my Jeep in the garage for like an hour. You know, I mean, I mean, like, we suffer here, you know, so anyhow, all right, chapter 8, when the king said to the woman, go to your house, I will give you orders concerning you, that's like saying, listen, I hear you, go home, the check's in the mail, right, like, he kind of blows her off, like, I'll send word, I'll give you an answer at some point, right, verse 9, and the woman at Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. And so basically she pushes, like, hey, you can't just send me away here. That's not going to help anything, right? I need, you to, I need you to give me an answer. I need you to help me out here. And she says, listen, I'll take the guilt. I'll take the blame. Just whatever. And he says, listen, if anybody comes for you or for your son, you let me know. No one's going to lay a hand on your family. I'll take care of you, right? That's his response. Verse 11. And then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not be destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So she says, Swear to me. Like, take an oath. Take an oath on God. Right? As the Lord lives. And so he says, let the, she says, Let the king invoke the Lord your God. And he says... As the Lord lives, like as God is my witness, not one hair from your son's head will fall to the ground, right? No one's going to touch a thing on me. And, and I swear to God, that's what's going on, right? And so he gives this strongest oath. Now, this is important. She's locked him in to a place where he has taken an oath. And if you remember, just we get so tr- kind of caught up in the story, we forget. Remember, nothing she's telling him is true. She's been sent by Joab to kind of bring him this story to get him to see his own life through a different lens, right? Verse 12, when the woman said, please let your servants speak a word to the Lord my king, and he said, speak. Can you imagine David right now, right? So like, hey, I've got this problem. Okay, what's your problem? Well, here's my problem. He says, go home. I'll take care of it. She says, yep, not good enough. Let's, let's, let's solve it right now, right? He says, Okay here's the answer. You're good. She says, one more thing. By the way, can you just take an oath? Like, I need something more than just your word. Like, I need you to swear on this. And so he does that. And she says, okay, so can I still, tip? like, one more thing. Can you just imagine him in this moment? Like, you've got to be kidding me, right? It's like in between services, you're like, you know I've got another service to do right now, right? <laughs> no, that's not, that's not true. You would never do that. All right, so. Verse 13, and the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. And as much as the king does not bring his banished one home again, she's like, ah, all right. Now, why would you do this for me, but why would you not do this for your son? So here's the catch, right? It's not about her. It's not about her sons. It's not about any of that. It's about David and his son Absalom. So I'll put this on the screen. David's life does not match his counsel. David has given much more grace to a stranger than he has given to his own son. His 2 tier justice has been exposed, and he needs to change. So he's revealed himself in this. He's shown his answer and what he thinks is justice, and yet he's not applying that to his own life. So the woman continues, verse 14. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again, but God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. She says, listen, our lives are like water. You spill it out on the ground, it's gone. But taking another life isn't what God wants in this circumstance. She's so bold to tell David, hey, listen, The way you're running yourself here isn't isn't in line with even what you think is right. See, the gospel is that kind of similar message, that same idea, right? That, That there is what's right, there is what's legal, there's what's allowable, but it's not always what God wants, right? So God creates you and I, God creates humanity, And he commissions us to be worshipers, right? He creates us or designs us that our function, our design is to be worshipers of God. And that's not just what we do when we're singing songs or in church, but that our lives would give glory to God. That's how we're created. We're made to bring glory to God with everything that we do, with every decision, with every relationship, with every choice, with every job, with every vocation. For our seniors, like with every college choice, military choice, our job choice, whatever. Like we're designed to bring glory to God in all those settings, right? But then we choose to do things our own way, knowing that it is against God. And so that's called sin. We choose to go another way. And when God told Adam, listen, here's what you can do. All this stuff is made for you. Then there's one thing. Don't do the one thing. You don't need that. It's bad for you. It'll kill you. In fact, when you do it on that day, you'll surely die, God says. And then Adam does it. And we inherit that sin. We inherit that, that, that proneness, that brokenness towards sin. And so we all sin, and, and we not just inherit sin, but we contribute to the sin in the world. And, and not just like once, right? We all know. We sin lots. And the penalty for sin is eternal separation from God. So what's legal? What's legal is God could legally just let us be separated from him. What is right and just is that we chose to go our own way. In fact, even more so, Christians, all of us, right? If you follow Jesus, if you consider Jesus the top priority in your life, that's a Christian, right? You know we still choose to do the wrong thing. So knowingly, knowing the penalty, knowing the cost, knowing that Jesus went and lived and then suffered and died and gave his life in exchange for us, and then died, the author of life died in a grave, and then rose again to give us new life, knowing all that, knowing the cost of the gospel, we still choose to sin. I don't mean just making mistakes, we still choose to sin. So the penalty of being separated from God is legal, it's just, it's correct, it's right. It's not what God wants. So God sends his son, right? Jesus comes in, God, eternal God, becomes flesh, right? Lives the life you and I are called to live by giving glory to God in everything that he does. And then goes and suffers a death he doesn't deserve. But he does it in our place, to trade for us, right? So there is justice being achieved. A penalty is being paid for our sin. A sinless sacrifice has been given for you and for me. Not just a sinless human being, but God gave his life for us that Jesus would die to cover our sin. So justice is served, but it would still be okay to, it would still be right and legal to let people, us, be separated from God, but Jesus reconciles us to God. And so there's what's legal, we all get banished from God eternally, and then there's what God wants. And the sacrifice comes in being the people to reconcile people to God, that Jesus himself pays that sacrifice, right? That God himself gives, in fact, the most famous verse in all of scripture, right? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Instead of being pushed away from God forever, we brought into God forever. And so we live in light of that. We live in this gospel that tells us that what is legal is not always what God wants. What is right and what is doable, what is allowable, is not always what God is calling us to do. It may be allowable for you to drink a drink, but it is not right to do that with someone struggling, trying to get sober, right? There's all kinds of things there that it might be allowable. It might be okay. Scripture might allow it. The law might allow it, but it's not always the right thing. It calls us, and you're going to see a consistent theme here all throughout Scripture, it calls us to sacrifice for the better thing. It calls calls us to give up our liberties. We sent out an email this week that obviously most of you got, right, that if you are vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. That's what the CDC has said. Right now, I know the president, the CDC, the NIH, California governor, and L.A. I know everybody's on a different page. So here's where we are, right? We say, listen, we heard that. We know California's moving to that. I get those emails from L.A. County. We know we're moving, so that's where we are, right? But in my email, I said, why don't you just bring a mask, right? I threw one in my pocket. And if somebody is uncomfortable, then put on your mask and talk to them. If you want to go up and talk to so-and-so and they're uncomfortable, then put on your mask and suck it up do the right thing, right? We sacrifice, we do what is less convenient or what is harder or what is sacrificial. I don't think putting on a mask is very sacrificial just for the record. Only in America is that sacrificial, right? Okay, that was worth it because Marcia snorted. So that just made it all worth it. Anyhow, so we, when, we, when we sacrifice, we sacrifice for the sake of others. As God sacrificed for us, as Jesus gave his life for us, he calls us to imitate that. And so you'll find a common theme that we're always called to do the right thing at our own cost, even when nobody else is. Because so much has been given to us. Because so much sacrifice that was undeserved, that we are undeserving of, has been given to us. When Jesus is asked, hey, Teach us to pray by his disciples. I just kind of clipped one line from it, and we'll put it on the screen. It says this He says, Pray them like this, and he prays. And then he gets to this part He says, Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. He teaches us, Listen, in the gospel, here's what we're to do. Because we're forgiven, we're to forgive other people. He doesn't say, Listen, when they deserve it or when they're nice. Or when they're black or when they're white, or when they're rich or when they're poor, or when they're young or when they're... He doesn't give it any qualifiers. He just says, listen, in Christ, you've been forgiven. Right? In the gospel, you've been forgiven. That means be forgiving to others. Right? Take the gospel given to you and be the gospel to other people. Right? Live this out. Show them Christ in your life. Be that. Right? Back in our story, 2 Samuel 14, verse 15 now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought I will speak to the king that it may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the men who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought if my, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest for so the lord my king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The lord God be with you. She keeps buttering him up at this point. And she continues to lie. Because she's worried Like, okay, where's this going to go? Like, I just told him, hey, you're an absolute hypocrite. And you gave me more justice and you gave your own son. So she kind of keeps it up. Here's his response. Verse 18. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord, the king, speak. David says, listen, I need you to be honest with me. Can you do that? Right? Verse 19. The king said... Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left. From anything that my lord the king has said, it was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. Right? She admits it's Joab behind this story. Right? So here's a note for you. David realizes he's been unfair. Right? So David has treated his own son more harshly than he treats others. The grace of the gospel means forgiving other sins against us as we ourselves are forgiven. Right? It means forgiving others. So let's play this out. Let's back up a minute. When David fails epically with Bathsheba, has an affair, gets her pregnant, tries to cover it up, twice with no success, and then the third time covers it up by having her husband murdered. Is he forgiven? Nathan comes to him with this story, right? And he says there's a a rich guy. He's got all kinds of lambs. And there's this other guy who's got one little lamb. And he loves the lamb. And he brought the lamb into his house. He's named the lamb. He loves the lamb. And the rich guy takes his lamb and slaughters it for a feast for somebody else and not his own. And David's furious. He goes, that guy should die. And then Nathan the prophet says, you're the guy. Uriah, whom you killed, is the other one. And his words, David's words, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan's first words are, you're forgiven. But you've got to walk through the penalties of your decisions, but you're forgiven. David has received forgiveness. He's received grace. He's been given much grace by God. And yet he's not extending this to others. Forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others, Jesus taught us, right? That we would practice that in prayer, that we would practice asking for forgiveness, but we would also, in the same breath, forgive other people. That we would treat others the way we've been treated in Christ. So verse 20, in order to change the course of things, she says, your servant Joab did this, but my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. She continues with the flattery. She's like, you're so wise. And she grabs his arm like, you've been working out, huh? I mean, that, I mean it's, it's that, right? I mean, it, it's that. Like, it, it's Joab. By the way, don't kill me, right? Verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, behold now, I grant this. Go back to the young man Absalom. So David immediately, so that snapshot is done. Last thing she does is kind of flatters David, and his next line is, to Joab, Joab, go get Absalom. So here's a positive trait, and we'll put this up. David, even when embroiled in some pretty big sin, repents. Immediately when confronted, we need to repent both quickly and completely of sin. David was caught in an affair, a cover-up, a murder, and repents. As soon as he is confronted with it, he repents when he is confronted on this, his immediate reaction is to repent. I I wish I could say in my life that it looked this quick and this complete, right? But there's that, I'm not listening to you phase, right? And then there's that kind of like, I'm getting there phase. And then there's the slowly I'll do it phase. And then there's finally the getting to it part, right? David doesn't, David's got some big sins. Don't get me wrong. This is normal, the Bathsheba and murder of Uriah is huge. He repents that quickly. And when confronted with his sin and his son, he repents quickly. There's a model there. And again, David is never the hero of the story. And, and this is why, because David's not perfect. Jesus is the hero of the story. Remember, the parallels are God has shown grace to David. David should be showing grace to others, right? David has for, been forgiven. David should be forgiving his son. And, and and forgiveness doesn't mean we overlook sin. Again, there's penalty to sin. But we began here today with figuring out, okay, now, not just what's legal and allowable, but what's right here. What's right in this circumstance, which is, again, hard to do. A, a quick, just because it fits. A quick plug, right? Pastor John's going to do that interpreting scripture, uh, interpreting the Bible class, right? And, and as, just as Yvette said, Sometimes we just take it and kind of grab our meaning out of it, and that often doesn't work, right? But learning what does Scripture say, how do we interpret it, It helps us in these times where you may have a competing verse where this is the law, but this is what grace looks like. What do we do? In a passage like this where what David could have done was execute Absalom, but he doesn't, but he hasn't forgiven him either. In those places, in those times, it's good to have a And a, a, a process, a lens by which, or a process by which you go through Scripture to understand it. And you can discern what the actual answer, when you take the totality of Scripture together, should be. And that's where David's being challenged, is to live out all of Scripture together. Verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go and bring back the young man Absalom. Go get my son, as we just read. Verse 22, And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Gesher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. So Joab has taken this on. He's taken on the burden of Absalom as if it's his own son. Here today, Joab is actually kind of living out the story better than David is. He sees the disparity. He's trying to figure out, how do I approach it? You know he's had countless conversations with David, right? I mean, you know that there's a, a backstory that we don't have all the details to. And so he finds a way in. Well, let's tell him this story through a different lens. Let's tell it through a different family. And let's, let's walk through that. But Joab has owned this. He's seen the unforgiveness and, and the disparity towards Absalom, and he owns it as if it's his own son. Sometimes that's how we need to treat people. We need to take on the burdens as if it's a burden to us. Verse 24, and the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He has not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So he allows him to come home, But David hasn't really reconciled. Listen, you murdered my other son, and I get what he did, and and it's muddy. And you should be at home, but I'm not ready to hang out yet. So come home, and I'm going to set you up. You're going to live like a prince, but we got to work on us. right? Forgiveness doesn't always mean that you just, in fact, it never means that you're just getting walked on. Even when we sacrifice for others who may not deserve it, It's that we are doing what Jesus has done for us, right? And and in this, he's not overlooking the issue. He's not overlooking the fact that he's down a son because of this. He just doesn't know how to navigate the relationship, though he's now treating him with equity, treating him with fairness. So let him dwell apart in his own household. So David's penalty from God. Here's a note for you. David was shown great grace from God and must learn how to show grace towards others. We often receive grace Without wanting to give it to others. He has received great grace. He knows there's a penalty to it. And he's walked through many of the penalties to it. So now he's shown grace to his son. But there's also a penalty. Like Absalom's going to have to walk through the repercussions of his decisions. Not sure quite how his father-son's relationship's going to be. But he's shown him grace. Verse 25. Now in all Israel there was no no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair of his head, for the, at the end of the year he used to cut it, it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman, so Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So he's a handsome man who shaves his head. I mean, that's a good start. Throwing that out there. So, what do we do with this? How how do we take this and how do we live this out? There's probably not many of us, if any of us in the room, right, where one son has killed another son. Now, I actually did a funeral for a circumstance like that not too long, about five years ago or so. Brutal, right? Six years ago. And uh, that's rare, right? That's not something we encounter. So we have to take what it is and figure out, okay, this doesn't just apply to me, but how, when I've received grace, do I show grace? And, and how, do I, how do I forgive, and how do I, tra- how do I give justice equally, not just when it's easy, but rather when it's hard? So in Luke 6, it says this. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's what we have in David and Absalom. We have a father-son duo that, have a, that share a similar sin. Just as we had with David and Amnon, we saw a similar sin shared, right? Wow, say that fast. Similar sin. Sh- yeah, I can't even do it. So glad I came, came out right the first time. All right, so there's a similar sin shared, right? Between the two of them, he murdered Uriah. And now Absalom has murdered his brother. So you have to be able to take the log out of your own eye, right, in order to go examining your brother. So he has to recognize his own sin in order to go and deal with the sin of Absalom's. And he does that. But what this doesn't mean is you overlook sin. So I want to give you two closing notes. Here's the first one. What Jesus isn't saying is this. Jesus isn't forbidding us from lovingly showing others where they're not walking with God. It just requires that we assess our own sin as well, right? We're not overlooking sin. We're not ignoring sin because I'm not sinless, right? Just because I'm not sinless doesn't mean we can't have a conversation about something you're doing that doesn't glorify God and probably killing your life, right? No one's perfect except Jesus. So there would be no pastors if that were true. For sure, there'd be no leadership. There'd be no parents, But instead, what we have to do is approach it through the eyes of, I get that I'm broken, have I assessed this first? So here's the second one, what Jesus is saying. Jesus shows us that our own sin often blinds us and skews how we see others. The command is to repent of our own sin while walking with others in their sin. I will often find some of the things that frustrate me, especially with family members, like my dad, I'm a lot like my dad, it frustrates me, right? Things in him I don't like, I see them in me. It's easy to point them out in him. My job is assess them in me, right? To walk with you. I can't tell you do one thing, and I don't live it out, right? So this first, remove the log out of your eye before you work on the speck of your brothers, isn't a, hey, you can't say anything. You know, judge not, lest you be judged. And It's not that, right? That has to do with eternity, by the way. But this is rather, do you Measure or judge yourselves equally or more harshly than you do others. First, look at your own life. Measure your own sin. Make sure you're repenting of sin, which will never be over with. But are you treating yourself with more grace than you're showing? Are you judging other people more harshly than you judge yourself? That's where Jesus speaks to us. Would we be honest with ourselves about who we are and the grace we've been shown, and will we both show others grace and walk with them in their sin? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that we have been shown grace. We thank you that each of us have a story about how you have been good to us. If we're in Christ, we have many stories about how you have been good to us. And so, Jesus, we have our stories of grace, we have our stories of forgiveness, and our job is then to kind of play that outward to the world, to show others forgiveness, to show others grace. And that's often easy with people we don't know. The story of David telling an unknown woman what is just and fair about her two sons when he has nothing costing him in his heart or in his life. It's easy to say that, but are we living that out when it's close to home? When it's hard to live out, when it's personal, when it's painful. But Jesus, you call us to do that. You call us to measure ourselves rightly, judge ourselves accurately, to be open to hearing a story, our perspective on ourselves from a different viewpoint, so that we can grow and learn. And then you actually call us to go. And in your own words, Jesus, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. You actually tell us to teach others right from wrong. You just teach us that it has to come from a place of repentance and grace. And so Jesus, thank you that you have given us grace. Thank you that you have forgiven us our many sins. Thank you that we are called and empowered by your spirit to go take that to others. Let us do so from a right place. Let us do so with humility and grace. Let us extend forgiveness to others knowing how you have extended forgiveness to us. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.